0: You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Abigail, and my husband David and I have been a part of Reality Honolulu for the last about three and a half years. And it has been so much fun, such a blessing for us to be a part of this church family. Um, For those of you who are new or maybe joining online, we are currently right in the middle of a study through the book of James. And I have to be honest with you, uh, the book of James has always been a book that has intimidated me. And not necessarily because the book is so complex or so hard to understand necessarily, um, but because it's such a convicting book. Um, my husband and I lead a Bible school, and sometimes we'll tell our students, like, if you ever just feel like, wow, I really need some conviction from the Lord, just flip open James, pick any verse, and it's just so practical, so convicting. Um, and that's how I felt the last few months that we've been in the book of James. Uh, the book of James is most likely written by James, the brother of Jesus. And something that it's important to note about James is that he was the early pastor of the Jerusalem church. And the reason that it's important for us to remember every single week that James is a pastor is because, honestly, when we read some of the things he writes in the book of James, it can come off a little bit harsh and a little bit extreme. And so it's so important. Every week we're reminded, this guy is a pastor. And he is writing to people that he loves and cares about deeply. He is a shepherd. And so the warnings in this book, the cautions in this book, really are coming from a place of love. He wants to see his church grow. He wants to see his church flourish. And so as we jump into our passage for this morning, let's keep that in mind. We're reading the heart of a pastor. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to our passage in James chapter 4, James chapter four, verses one through six. Now we're gonna be reading through all six verses, but we're gonna be focusing specifically on the first three today. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Lord, we we come together to do this Bible study on your word, and I would pray for myself and every person in this room that our hearts would be open, our ears would be open, our minds would be open to what you have to say. And we just invite your spirit into this morning, and we just say, Holy Spirit, we love you. We know you want what's best for us, and so we just ask you to speak, for you to move. Um, And I pray that we would walk away this morning transformed by your word. Amen. So when my husband and I were first married, um, we did what most young couples do, which is we decided to get a puppy, and uh, we decided to get a four-month-old boxer puppy, and I decided to include photos with this story because this is a a dog-loving church, clearly. And so I thought you would appreciate. Um, His name is Rufio, which is from the Steven Spielberg movie, Hook, if you've ever seen it. Um, And in the weeks leading up to getting Rufio, and especially in that first year after having him, David and I got really into watching those dog training TV shows. Has any of you guys seen those, like the Caesar Milan dog training shows? Doesn't matter what show you watch, they all follow the same premise. There's a family. They have a troubled dog. The dog is pulling or biting or scratching or jumping. So what do they do? They call the expert. And this dog trainer will come in and they all do the same thing. The first thing they do is they just watch the dog in their natural habitat, right? They just observe. And what they're trying to figure out is where is this bad behavior coming from? What's the source of this bad behavior? And usually if you watch these shows, they're really trying to figure out one of two things. Is this behavior coming from aggression or is this behavior coming from fear? So usually dog trainers will say, we have either an aggressive dog or a fearful dog. And that little diagnosis is actually so important because their path with that dog from there on out, is going to change determining on what the root cause is, right? Because if they just deal with the behavior, what's going to happen is this behavior is just going to come up again and again. And so they'll usually try and figure out, where's this coming from? Are we dealing with a fearful dog? Are we dealing with an aggressive dog? What's going on? And what I love about our passage today in James is that James is not satisfied with just dealing with the symptoms, just dealing with the surface problems going on in the church. And rather, what he's gonna do in this passage today is he's gonna dig down and he's gonna ask the important question, what is the source of these problems in the church? What's going on underneath that's causing these issues that we're having? And there are plenty of problems, plenty of problems. So verse one and two, what do we read? There are fights and quarrels among you. Who is the you? There are fights and quarrels among you. Who's the you? This is my Bible students right up here. The church, yeah, the people of God. There are fights and quarrels among the people of God. That word fights can be also translated as wars or battles. So James is intentionally using really strong language here to describe the kind of um, fighting, infighting, that's going on in the church. And not only that, but last week in chapter 3, we read about disorder in the church selfish ambition in the church, boasting, lying. It's not the prettiest picture of the early church, um, which is a little bit comforting, I think, for us. I think sometimes when we think about the early church, we tend to have rose-colored glasses, like, oh, the early church, if we could only get back to, to those days. But they were human, just like we're human. They have issues just like we have issues. And I imagine it would be so easy for James to look at them and just say, you know what, just stop fighting. Just stop fighting, just stop quarreling. But instead what he does is he asks, where is this behavior coming from? Verse one, he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The word desires here comes from the Greek word hedonon, which is where we get the word hedonism. Hedonism. And if you don't know, hedonism is a worldview. It's a belief system that says the ultimate aim of a human life is the satisfaction of all of your desires, hedonism. The highest aim for your human life is for you to get all of your desires, hedonism. And what James is saying here is your desires are at war within you. So on one hand, these guys are believers, and so they desire to please the Lord. But at the same time, they're torn between these other desires that says, you know what? I want to please myself first and foremost. And these two beliefs are clashing within them. Verse 2, you desire but do not have, so you kill. That escalated quickly. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Okay, we're gonna come back to this verse in a minute because I think this is the key to this passage. But for now, we'll keep reading. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So we have two problems going on in the church. On the one hand, we have people who have godly desires, and they are not taking those desires to the Lord in prayer. And James says, ask. Ask God, pray. Just like a child would ask their father, ask him for good gifts. On the other hand, we have people who are asking God, but what are they asking for? They're treating God more like a genie in the bottle, like a pathway to living their best life. And they're asking God for their own desires. Why? So they can spend everything that God gives them on their own pleasure. And so James is calling them out on it, and he is calling them out for having mixed allegiances, for trying to be both friends of the world and friends of God, for trying to please God first and foremost, and then also try and please themselves first and foremost. And he says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot have both be your priority. Otherwise, you are at war within your own self. Now, we're going to go back to verse two here, because I think this is really key in diagnosing what's going on in the church. You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. I think this is where James really is pulling back the curtain and saying, this is the real problem underneath all of your fighting. And when he pulls the curtain back, what is there? What's the problem? Coveting, coveting. You desire but don't have. You covet but you cannot get what you want. Now in this context, coveting can be defined in this way. The inappropriate or restless desire for what someone else has or something that does not belong to you. And we can fill in the blank for whatever that might be, right? Wealth, honor, fame, prosperity, popularity, friendships, recognition. Uh, Craig Blomberg uh, in his commentary on James describes coveting this way He says this kind of envy seeks the best for oneself Regardless of what might be good for another person always wishing for others to have less than oneself whether possessions or with opportunities in a group setting Bitter jealousy may manifest a fierce desire to promote one's own opinion to the exclusion of others. And James points and says this, this thing is taking root in your hearts and it is growing and it is producing all kinds of evil in the body of Christ. Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks in our series, you know that this is not the first time that James has put the spotlight on coveting. So if we go back just to what the passage last week chapter 3 verse 16 listen to what James says about coveting. This is James 3:16. For where you have envy or coveting and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Okay, did you guys catch that? That's a really big claim. He says, if you have envy in that same place, what are you gonna find? Disorder and every evil practice. Really? Every evil practice? So what James is saying here is, you know what? Envy doesn't just lead to cordling, but it can actually grow and become every other kind of evil as well. He says something similar even further back in our series in James chapter 1, verse 14. Listen to his train of thought here. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That word desire there is the same word for covet. Each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, same word, covetousness. When it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. It's the same concept here. So do you guys see the connection James is making? He's saying coveting is ground zero. Coveting is the birthplace where every other evil act is coming from. He's making this claim, and it's a bold claim about the dangers of coveting in the church. And if we go outside of James, the rest of the Bible demonstrates this very well. So probably the best example of this is the very first sin in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. If you go back to that story in Genesis chapter three, it's really interesting. We put a lot of focus on the act, right, of Eve taking the fruit. But in Genesis chapter three, it says that three things happen first before she makes the decision to take the fruit. It says that she sees that the tree is good. She, uh, oh, I have it, I should read it. She sees that the tree was good. It was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired. That word desired is the same word for covet. She saw that the tree was to be coveted, and then she takes and eats. And that's really profound because it echoes exactly what James is saying, which is before the sin, before the act, there's something that happens in the heart, the desire for something you should not have, the desire for something that does not belong to you. And so before Eve ever reaches out and takes the fruit in her heart, she covets that thing. And that's the birthplace of sin, not only for Eve, but for the rest of the world. What about the very next sin in the story of the Bible? What's the first sin after the fall? Cain and Abel, great, this is our Bible trivia, queen. Cain and Abel, murder, brother kills brother. And what's the motivation for that murder? Jealousy, right? God favors Abel's offering and not Cain's, and Cain is jealous, and it's like this domino effect. Jealousy becomes anger, anger becomes hate, hate leads to murder. And so you have this crazy escalation that starts with this really small emotion, jealousy, coveting. What about the famous story of David and Bathsheba, right? David is out on his city walls, and he sees a woman that does not belong to him, and he desires her. He covets her. And what does that lead to? It leads not only to adultery, but it leads to murder. Something I didn't really notice until studying for this, but in... Matthew 27, 18, it says it was because of envy that the religious leaders had Jesus arrested and killed, because of envy. And it goes on and on. We can find example after example of how dangerous this emotion actually can be. Some of you may know, uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, that the command not to covet is the 10th commandment of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if anyone had to memorize that growing up in the church but it is the 10th of the Ten Commandments. Uh, But what you may not know is that most Bible scholars agree that that 10th commandment is unique in that coveting opens the door to breaking the other nine. Uh, Bible scholar uh, Christopher Wright describes it in this way. He says, James recognizes the insidious and far-reaching effects of covetousness in producing behavior that breaks the other commandments. So you see that link. Covetousness is the ground floor, and then it produces behavior that breaks the other commandments. So serious indeed is covetousness in its stranglehold on human minds and intentions that Paul twice equated it with idolatry. Thus the 10 commandments come full circle. To break the 10th is to break the first. For covetousness means setting our hearts and affections on things that then take the place of God. Something that I I did not know until I was studying this passage for this message uh, is that coveting is um, one of the most frequently warned about sins in the New Testament, both by Jesus and the other New Testament authors. I didn't realize that. And that surprised me. Because to be totally honest with you, this sounds terrible to say. Envy and coveting is actually not something I think much about at all. And in fact, if I were to, not that you should, but if I were to make a list of which sins I think are really bad, envy and coveting really don't fall highly on the list, right? You compare it with like anger and pride and lust, these ones that we think, oh, these are like the big ones. Envy seems like such a small thing, right? Even the way we talk about it. Oh, I felt a little bit jealous of her or, oh yeah, you know, I was kind of coveting that thing, we almost like kind of wink at it and smile at it like, oh, it's just this almost innocent little feeling we have because it starts out so small, right? Oh man, I wish I had that. Oh man, I don't think they really deserve that. I kind of think I deserve that. It really doesn't seem serious at all. And so this was really convicting to me because the biblical authors clearly think this is such a dangerous thing to let enter your hearts because it can escalate so quickly and it can take and destroy so much from your life. So what's the solution? What do we do? How do we guard against coveting? How do we keep it from taking root in our hearts and in our minds so that it does not rob us of the things God has for us? So uh, what we're gonna do is uh, first think about, well, I guess I should say it this way. If you're like me, it's much easier to start doing something new than it is to stop doing something. So what I mean by that is to tell ourselves, you know what, from now on, I'm just not gonna covet anymore. That's really not gonna help us all very much. Uh, Rather, what's a little bit more practical is, well, rather than coveting, is there something I can move towards? Is there something I can cultivate? And so I would say uh, that rather than focusing on just stopping envy or stopping coveting, rather we should cultivate the opposite thing in our life. So my question for you is, what is the opposite of coveting? What is the opposite of coveting? And I would say, contentment. Contentment is the opposite of coveting. What is contentment? Contentment is being at rest with what you have now a state of satisfaction in fact you could go so far as to divine coveting as the opposite right covetousness is the absence of contentment so these things are polar opposites and they are mutually exclusive so you cannot be in a state of coveting while being content and you cannot be content and feel covetousness so they are mutually exclusive states of being coveting and contentment Now, there are um, two things that I would say feed coveting more than anything else. Two things. The first is pride, and the second is unthankfulness. Pride and unthankfulness. Coveting says, first of all, I am not getting what I deserve. Right? That's pride. I am not getting what I deserve. And second... What I have been given, it's not enough, unthankfulness. That's, that's the voice of coveting. I'm not getting what I deserve and what I have is not enough. And that is the opposite of contentment. And what feeds contentment is the inverse. What feeds contentment is humility and thankfulness. Because the voice of contentment says, you know what, actually, I have been given far more than I deserve. And I am so grateful for the things that I've been given. That's the voice of contentment mutually exclusive states of being. Now, I think we can all look at these two things and say, yeah, I'd rather live a life of contentment. I'd rather live a life of peace and joy. And the good news, if you didn't know this, I'm here to tell you, the good news is is that the message of the Bible says that contentment is available to each and every one of us right now, regardless of what you do or do not have in your possession, regardless of what stage of life you currently happen to be in. And that is the opposite message of the world, which says, yeah, contentment is available to you. Not yet. You need a little bit more. You need to get a few more things, and then you'll be content. The message of the Bible is that if you are a believer, you can live a life of contentment right now, exactly with what you have in exactly the state of health or wealth that you have at this very moment. And that is really, really good news. And so what we're going to talk about for the time that we have left is how do we practically cultivate contentment in our life? What does that look like to seek a life of contentment? But before we do, I I just want to pause for a minute and answer a question that I think some of you might be asking. And that's this question. What about those desires you have for good God-honoring things? Is that wrong? What about those desires you have for good God-honoring things? Maybe you're single and you want to be married. Maybe you're married and you want to have kids. Maybe you don't have a job and you're looking for work. Maybe you're living in an apartment and you want to buy a house. What about those things that you want, that you believe, you know what, these are good things and I think that it's in line with God's will for my life. So I just wanted to pause and clarify. There is absolutely nothing wrong with desiring good things that you think are in line with God's will for your life. And in fact, I think what James would do is that he would say, take those requests to God in prayer. Ask him boldly for those things. Just like a little kid would ask his dad, here's what I want. That's a huge theme in James, right? Prayer. Go and ask him for those things. The danger, and this is, please hear me. The danger, though, is those areas can very easily slip into areas of discontent in our life. So just think of these as like, Areas of caution because those things that we want, even if they're God honoring, it can be very easy to get fixated on them. And what can start out as being just a desire can slowly become, you know what, actually, what I have is not enough. And why isn't God giving me what I need? And you start to look around at the people who have the thing that you want and you become bitter towards them and you begin to say, you know what, why do they have what I don't have? I deserve that. And it's a very easy for, for envy and, and covetousness to really slip through the doors of your life in those places. So I just want to clarify, nothing wrong with good gone uttering desires. Just be careful about those areas that they don't turn into places of bitterness in your heart. Does that make sense? Okay, just that was my aside. Back on track. All right, how do we cultivate contentment in our lives? I want to share with you four uh, hopefully practical ways that we can cultivate contentment in our life today. The first, and this is where we've spent most of our time this morning, is recognize the dangers of coveting. This is a really good place to start if you're like me and you didn't give much thought to coveting before Pastor Riz asked you to give a message on this passage. Um, This is a great place to start. Uh, Jealousy is a big deal, and it's very, very dangerous. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 12:15, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. That phrase, be on your guard, can be translated keep watch, be alert, guard against. Okay, so Jesus even says, look, be very careful about this thing, because it's going to start small, and it's going to grow quickly, and it can really devastate. So be on your guard, watch out. Um, something Pastor Riz and I were talking about when we were talking about this message is clearly jealousy and envy has been a problem from the beginning of time. But I would say that we in the 21st century face probably the most, we're at the most disadvantage when it comes to discontentment. Because our lives are continually being pumped, filled with imaging and television and advertisements and social media that is curated and designed to create discontentment in your heart. You live in a generation where massive corporations are spending literally hundreds of thousands of dollars designed to create ads to make you discontent with your life, with the way you look, with the car you drive, with the house you live in. So this has been a problem for all people, but if anyone should be alert, it should be us because we are at a disadvantage in the era that we live in. Um, Advertising companies actually have a name for this. They call it constructive discontent. They want to create constructive discontent in your heart. And they use the word constructive because then you'll buy their product, and then it's constructive because they made some money. There's an American uh, behavioral scientist named Marsha L. Rich, and she wrote an article about advertising and consumer discontent. And what she writes is going to surprise none of us in this room. She said, exposure to idealized advertising images leads consumers to compare, often unconsciously, their own lives with those represented. The result is consumer discontent and an increased desire for more. It's what they're designed to do. So, Number one, we need to be aware of the dangers of coveting. And maybe for you specifically, this means just being aware of the types of media that you're allowing into your life. And whether or not, I can't be the judge of this, whether or not they are creating uh, coveting and discontent in your life. And maybe that needs to be slowed down. The stream of it needs to be slowed down in your life. Uh, The second uh, way we can cultivate contentment in our lives, this is such a freeing one, and that's practicing gratitude. Practicing gratitude. Um, if you want to wage war against coveting, gratitude is the weapon to do it. Uh, thankfulness, a heart that is thankful, thankful towards God is a heart that is not jealous. And so if you don't already have rhythms in your daily life of thanksgiving, this would be a great time to start. When you wake up, when you go to bed, uh, when you talk with your friends in your quiet times, have a rhythm of thanksgiving towards God for all of the gifts that he's put into your life. And the message of the Bible is that every single thing you have is an undeserved gift from God. Every single thing in your life, from the breath in your lungs to this beautiful creation, everything is a gift from God to you. Unfortunately, as humans, sometimes we create categories of things that are gifts from God and things we earn for ourselves. Right? We have certain categories, right? beautiful Hawaii creation, oh, that's a gift from God, oh, but here's the money that I earned this week. Um, that is a false dichotomy. And God actually warns the people of Israel about that very attitude in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. So the nation of Israel is camped outside of the border of the promised land and they're about to go in. And if you guys are up on your Bible trivia, you know that they're coming out of 40 years in the wilderness where they have gotten every meal by miracle. Manna from heaven. And there is no one among them, I hope, that could see that as anything less than a gift, right? If you get miracle bread from heaven, there's nothing in you that can say, I earned that. But now things are about to change. They're about to go into the promised land and it's gonna be different. They're actually gonna have to farm for that food. They're gonna have to work for that food. And all of a sudden there's a danger. So listen to how Moses uh, warns them. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Take care, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all you have is multiplied, it's going to be good, but be careful, then your heart may be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Beware, and this is the part I want you to hear, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So he says, whether or not you get miracle bread from heaven or whether you farm the land, either way, each side of that equation is a total gift from God, no matter how you look at it. So whether you get a miracle check in the mail that covers your rent, or whether you go to work and you get a paycheck, both equally should be viewed as God gave me everything that I have. And that should stir gratitude in our hearts. All right, running a little bit low on time. (laughs) Sorry, two more. Three, Uh, ask this question. Ask this question. How might God be using my current circumstance for good? Okay, ask that question especially about an area you feel discontent right now. God, how might you be using my current situation for good? Let's say you're living in an apartment complex or a neighborhood that you are not fond of and you would like to get out of. Okay, that's great. But in the meantime, while you live there, ask God, hey God, what are you doing in this apartment complex? What are you doing in this neighborhood? How might you might want to use me in this area? And it's gonna flip the way you view your situation. Hey, I'm single and I want to be married. Okay, great pray for that. In the meantime, you're single, you are equipped in a way that no other stage of life is equipped to give your time and your life to the Lord. That could be a really exciting thing. So in areas of discontentment, ask, you know, God, how actually might this situation, how might you work here in this? James himself famously says in chapter one, verses two through three, consider it pure joy. This is such a crazy thing to say. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's crazy. It's a beautiful verse, and it's famous, so we love it. But if you actually think about it, it's crazy. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. Why? Because God's moving in it, and he's doing something. There's actually something there for you if you just open your eyes and look for it. Um, There's no better human example of someone who lives this out than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is someone who was constantly asking this question about every circumstance in his life. Um, This is a bit of a spoiler for those who are coming on Tuesday to the book of Philippians. But when Paul writes the book of Philippians, he is imprisoned and he is awaiting um, a potential death sentence. He is imprisoned and he is awaiting a potential death sentence death sentence, and you read the letter of Philippians, and not only does Paul seem content to be in prison, he seems perfectly thrilled. I mean, you read it, and you're like, something is wrong with you, sir. Like, you just seem totally happy with the fact that you are now in chains, and the reason for that is because he's asking this question, how is God using my current situation for good? And listen to what he says to the people he's writing. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Like, wow, this is actually a good thing. Why? He gives two reasons. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. In other words, he says, yeah, I'm in prison, but because I'm here, every single one of the imperial guard here in this location has heard the name of Jesus. What a win. And then second, he says... And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So not only that, but now the church is even more bold because of my imprisonment. Do you guys see how just this change in perspective allows Paul to look at a really difficult situation and say, look at how God is moving. And actually, I don't know if I would want it any other way than this, because I can see how powerful me being here is for the advancement of the kingdom. It's a different way of looking at our lives. It does make us look very crazy to other people, I will admit. But it's pretty cool, too. All right, fourth and last. You guys are doing great. Uh, This is the most important one. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In Jesus, we find all contentment, all comfort, all peace, all joy, all satisfaction. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. You look at Paul, and here's a guy whose desires are not at war within him. It is no contest. Oh, what do I want more, Jesus or the world? For Paul, it was hands down, no contest every time. Jesus, I count everything else in my life almost as as a loss just because in comparison with knowing Jesus Christ. And so if we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and fall more in love with him, what's going to happen is every other desire just starts to pale. It starts to pale because of the gift we've been given in him. We're going to close this morning with one final passage. This would be a great uh, memory verse if you're into that kind of thing. Did any of you guys do a wanna when you were little? Yeah, little memory verses? Okay. This is a beautiful passage. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, and I think it sums up uh, what we've been talking about this morning really well. It says, Let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. For he himself, talking about Jesus, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me? This is such an amazing promise. Don't covet. Be content. Why? How can we have that kind of contentment? Because we have Jesus and he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And when we have Christ, we have everything that we need and we find our ultimate satisfaction in him. We're going to transition now into a time of worship. And as we do, I'd like to invite us to to do this very thing, this fourth thing, and fix our eyes on Jesus and what he's done for us at the cross. And I would encourage us to make room for the Holy Spirit to speak to us about maybe some areas of discontentment that we have in our own life. And then just invite the Holy Spirit to come and bring peace, come and bring comfort, come and bring contentment and gratitude into our hearts. And as we close, I want to leave you with one uh, final uh, like lyric. And I was praying over this message this morning, and this song came on to the Spotify playlist, and the words were so perfect for the message. Um, This is a song called Only You. And it says, Only you can quench our insatiable hearts, for our rest can only be found in your arms. Our lives are yours, for only you can satisfy. Let's pray. Lord, we we love you so much, and we're just so uh, thankful for for you and how you invite us into a life of contentment. And for each and every one of us here, it doesn't matter what we have, what we don't have, what stage of life we're in. We have you, and you promised you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. And so I pray for myself and for each of us here that we would fix our eyes on you, that we would find contentment in you and you alone. Amen.